Many of you may want to promote your organization, your business, a cause, or your favorite charity to our listeners. For this year, 2024, you can do that right here on this podcast. This podcast is now carried worldwide on 15 different streaming platforms. Hundreds, if not thousands, listen to each episode each month. For just $100, you can get a 60-second advertisement that will run all month. That's 30 days of advertising for just 100 bucks. For $200, you can get a 60-second advertisement that will run for two months. And for just $300, guess what? Yep, you got it. You get a 60-second advertisement that runs consecutively for three months. Friends, I'm very familiar with radio advertising costs. I know how much it costs. It's a lot. Let me say this clearly to you. You will not find a better deal. Interested? Email me. Let's talk about how we can help you advertise. You can reach me at tjordan at 1795group.com. That's T-J-O-R-D-A-N at 1795group.com. Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. For this episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Annalisa Bracco about the heat of our oceans this past summer of 2023. It was hot. The question that I ask her is this one, should I care? As you will hear, she certainly thinks so. There's no fudging temperature readings. You you see, it doesn't really matter whether you think human activity is at fault or not. Temperature readings do not lie. The temperature of our water and land are going up. The planet's getting hotter. Although this episode was recorded in late July 2023, and this is March 2024, it was clear then that the year 2023 was going to be the hottest year on record. It was, by a long shot. In fact, the chief of the United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, Sarah Kapnick, said this in a statement from her agency. After seeing the 2023 climate analysis, I have to pause and say, the findings are astounding. Her words, the findings are astounding. Not only was 2023 the warmest year in NOAA's 170-year period of keeping climate records, but it was also the warmest by far. So let me ask you, should we care that our water and land are getting hotter? Can we do anything about it? Well, let's ask our guest. My special guest for this episode is Dr. Annalisa Bracco. I've been waving to her through the window of the soundproof booth, and she's been waiting patiently, listening to me jibber-jabber. 
She's been waiting patiently to enter the studio, and she's been smiling. Dr. Bracco is always smiling. Dr. Bracco is a climate expert. She's a professor and associate chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology. She received her Ph.D. degree in 2000 in oceanography and geophysics from the University of Genoa in Genoa, Italy. Essentially, she studies the role of oceans. She already has more scientific publications than I can count. She's really an expert, and she's really smart. Let's bring her into the studio. Here she is, Dr. Annalisa Bracco. My special guest today is Annalisa Bracco, Ph.D., She's a professor and associate chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology. How are you doing, Annalisa? How I'm are you? I'm doing great, and I'm very happy to be here with you today. Well, thank you. Thanks for waving and smiling back at, <laughs> through the little window of the studio here. We appreciate that. So, you know, you're a professor like me. Um, you've been at the university, uh, I shouldn't say Georgia Tech, you've been at Georgia Institute of Technology, how many years? 17. It's been a long time. 17 years. So you're a veteran. So we always give professors free advertising. I think that we should always give free advertising for a university, for your academic, academic area. So let me ask you this. Why would a student who's maybe graduating from high school this year think about the Georgia Institute of Technology and why would a high school senior maybe Think about majoring in your new major, environmental science, that may lead to a graduate degree in ocean science and engineering. So, yes. ready, set, go. Free advertising. We have a lot of reasons um, that students may want to look carefully into our program. It's brand new, and we have really an incredibly talented and highly motivated team of faculty and instructors that have built this program with students and their needs in mind. And the students will receive personalized attention. This is one of the great thing of doing a major in environmental sciences that we don't have an incredibly large number of undergraduate and we really take great care of them. And um, the, our, our goal is to really position them to be leaders in industry, academia, education, in communication, in the government because we have a couple of really big challenges in the environment that we need to tackle. And a great summary is the sustainable uh, development goals of the uh, UN, which are essentially all linked to what the climate is going to do. And um, so what we did was to um, maintain a strong computational, um, computational and modeling and, and component of our traditional degree because this has been very successful. This has helped students to get a variety of jobs, but we also add a lot of flexibility so that they can really uh, build the curriculum based on what their skill and their goals. So they want to go into environmental justice, which is a huge topic at the moment. They can do that. They can build classes and add classes in environmental policy or they may want to work in biology and biodiversity, and they can do that as well. So it's a great interdisciplinary program. It's convergent, it allows customization, and has, has been planned 
with the faculty leading the development, working and talking to professionals in a lot of environmental fields so that we really knew what the skill they wanted were to be successful um, on the job market immediately after they graduate. And um, the other great things about it is that there are a lot of opportunities for experimental learning, which means that the students will have opportunity to do internships, to do field work, um, to invite outside speakers, uh, to do research in large interdisciplinary teams, to do study abroad program. Um, so really the idea is to get the brightest mind interested in working in climate sustainability and make their journey interesting, also fun, but also give them the breadth and the depth that they need to solve this huge challenge we have. So this new undergraduate major that you have in environmental science that leads to a graduate degree in ocean science and engineering, which is your area. Is that a master's degree, doctoral degree? It's or a both? doctoral degree. So if they want to okay. continue, then we also have that option. We also have an option of a graduate degree in health and atmospheric sciences as well. Okay, very good. Well, thank you for that plug. I know your host institution appreciates it, and so do I. So let's get right to it, shall yeah. we? Um, I, I've read that ocean temperatures have been off the charts on the high side since like March of 2023. And, that, and that's breaking temperature records that we've had for 40 years of satellite monitoring. Is that something just the media made up or is it true or false? No, Dr. it's Brockman? true. It's true and is definitely dismaying. Um, they are the highest recorded since we have satellites. And in many areas of the tropical Pacific, the North Pacific around Japan, uh, the North Atlantic, especially around the uh, Scandinavian Peninsula, the Baltic Seas, the Mediterranean Sea, have been three to six degrees Celsius higher than normal. It's a lot. It is worrisome. We are starting to see the impacts in many countries, in many like weather events, but also marine ecosystems. Um, we have again coral bleaching ongoing, uh, big time in Florida, for example. We have fires. We had fires in Canada. And it's kind of the first time we had fires in Canada, both from the east all the way to the, to the west of the country. So really cover the whole country. We have huge fires in Greece, uh, droughts in Spain and France, uh, really strong heat waves in Italy. Scandinavian Peninsula is under a drought condition. Um, Japan has been really scorching hot. And then we have the Southwest U.S., which is also pretty hot right now. So you're talking about water and land. I presume the temperature of water may impact the temperature of land. I'm not sure. You know, environmental health is not my area of public health, mm -hmm. I will admit, uh, we do have an environmental health class that is required of undergraduate majors. We have a, an environmental health major, um, but I don't, that's not my area of expertise. So tell me, are the temperatures of land connected yes. to the temperatures of water? Yes. I mean, we are in a big planet, which is, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's all connected. 
So what happened really on our planet is that um, the ocean influences. It, it's the major... Um, if you're thinking of warming up the planet with photons from the sun, um, most of that absorption is going to be done by the ocean. Um, and so the ocean is going to absorb the solar radiation and then is going to release heat, which drives the atmospheric circulation. And the land, on the other hand, absorb only very little because it's a solid and mostly reflect everything back, right? While the ocean is a dark liquid, and so it's really good at absorbing quite a lot of photons. Depends on the angle, but it's still much better than a solid. Um, and so that explains why the oceans maybe are so hot, is they're absorbing this sunlight, this extra heat, I, I saw... They're absorbing extra yeah. heat because what happened is that, you know, the sun has not really changed much in the last 40 years in terms of its radiation. But what we have changed is the composition of the atmosphere. So that heat, which is okay. released, which is called infrared radiation, it's getting trapped in within our atmosphere instead of going back a little bit. Okay. And so the ocean has the, the big, um, it's a big player because first of all, it's absorbing. And the other thing is that as currents, and so it's also redistributing that heat, especially in the north-south direction. While the atmosphere distributes the heat mostly with winds, mostly east-west. So if you are warming up the ocean, you are automatically warming up land and vice versa. I see. So they are connected. Yes, they're very strongly connected. You mentioned coral bleaching. I, I saw something on uh, my, my wife and I like to watch David Muir in the national <laughs> news on, I think it's ABC. Um, and he had a, a special on Florida, what was happening with the water. And, you know, I've, I've been in the ocean recently. I thought, well, this is great. It's great for swimming. Um, but they went under, the reporter went under with a mask and, and they were talking about and pointing out some coral that had already been bleached out that already has, is white. Should we be concerned about coral bleaching? Yes, we should definitely be concerned. It's also a really bad time uh, for having bleaching so early in the season. Um, we are just at the end of July because in a couple of weeks, uh, that's the spawning season for corals. So that's when the corals release larvae. And um, if they are bleached, they are not going to be able to do that. So um, you are not just damaging, you're not just seeing the damage that you have today, but you're also damaging next year in the sense that if a coral is under stress, receiving new healthy larvae that can grow on it, it's actually helpful. But we are not going to see many okay. larvae this year because the spawning is probably going to. Is a bleached coral that's white, is it dead? No. Will it ever recover? No. Uh, so the coral is colored because there is a polyp that lives into it. When the water gets too hot, the, cor the, the polyp leaves. And I so see. the coral per se is white. They are all white. And uh, if the temperature doesn't stay too elevated for very long, the polyps are able to come back and recolonize um, the coral. But if it stays warm for long, and unfortunately this summer looks like, uh, then the 
the polyps will die and will not come back and the coral will be dead. Okay, so the coral will die if it's a long time of warmth in the water. So let's let's talk about El Nino. I hear that a lot in the news. I think El Nino, I think, literally means little boy, mm -hmm. yes. right? Uh, it's a Spanish term, means little boy. So what is El Nino and how might it have an impact on what's happening here? So El Nino is um, a, a part, a piece of the so-called El Nino Southern Oscillation, uh, which is the recurring climate pattern that happens in the Pacific. And the El Nino is the warm phase of that climate pattern. We have several climate patterns on our planet, but El Nino is the largest. It's the one that moves the most energy in the system. And it technically we call them climate, climate modes of variability. And El Nino, the El Nino standard oscillation, also known in short as ENSO, um, is a recurring pattern of warm and cold sea surface temperatures that uh, move in the tropical um, and equatorial Pacific. Um, so if you look at the normal condition in the Pacific or the average, you take a 10-year average or a 20-year average of temperature in the Pacific, you will find that the west is warmer than the east side of the Pacific, of quite a lot. So by about, it's three to, um, it's about six degrees. It's about 30 degrees Celsius in the west and 24 degrees Celsius in the east. Once in a while, on periods between three to seven years, the warm water from the west moved towards the center and eastern Pacific and caused a warming of one to three degrees, usually compared to normal, in the center and in the east. And that's called El Nino. And I the see. maximum warming occurs around Christmas. And so the Peruvian fishermen call it El Nino because it's the boy that is boy. I see. So it's a warming of Pacific Ocean water from the east? From the, the, the west. west. From the, the west to from the, the east. From the west, yes. They, the water moves towards the east and they get to the center and then they eat Chile and Peru, the Peruvian and Central American coast. Okay, well, let me let me read you a, a quote with the Director of Climate Services for the World Meteorological Organization said, and you, you respond to it. He's, he is quoted as saying, we, meaning the Earth, humans, we're in uncharted territory, and we can expect more records to fall as El Nino develops further and these impacts will keep going into 2024. This is worrying news for our planet. Do you agree or disagree? I agree. I agree. And in fact, it we will see what happens essentially in the winter. Um, so by the time we are going to, uh, our your listeners are going to listen to this podcast, um, we will know how bad it's been this winter because El Nino does peak in December, as we, as we mentioned. And, you know, we have not seen a lot of El Ninos in the past 20 years. Because there is this movement of warm water, the ocean, when there is an El Nino, releases more heat into the atmosphere that, than when there is the opposite phase of this pendulum, which is called La Nina. So it's always a little bit warmer than normal when there is an El Nino and a little bit cooler than normal when there is a La Nina. 
But right now we are having a very strong trend. So our mean temperature are going up because there is a warming. And on top of that, we are releasing all this extra heat because of El Nino. And this is really enchanted territory. We just don't know how bad things may, may turn. That's maybe what he means by it's worrying news for the planet because we, we just don't know yet what it's going to look like. So the opposite of El Nino, I understand, is the little girl, La Nina, Nina. right? Yep. And that that's when we would have a, like a cold winter? Um, we usually have a colder winter. We have um, very warm sea surface temperature on the West Pacific and relatively colder than normal in the um, along the coast of the American continent. Um, it also changed the winds. So one of the, you know, it may be a colder winter and overall is a colder global temperature, but it's also more hurricane in the Atlantic usually. It has impacts okay. on winds. Um, so we have more wind shear in the atmosphere. And so La Nina usually means more hurricane. If you are thinking of the year where we finish all the letters of the alphabet for the naming and we start naming the hurricanes with Greek letters, that was a La Nina year. Okay. And, uh, so we really don't know. We're sitting here at the end of July. We really don't know what hurricane season is going to look like. Um, people are worried because the, the ocean temperatures are so hot. I know David Muir said in, on his special, the temperature around Florida where he, the diver went in was around 90 yes. degrees. Yes. I mean, that's great for swimming, but that's about it's it. Too much um, for swimming. It's like a hot yeah, tub. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a hot tub. So how do fish, how do fish yeah, survive that, in that kind of they're temperature? They're not. That's that's the the big problem. You know, we have AC, they don't, and so it's definitely worrisome. And you know, the other thing about the hurricane season, there are two ingredients to hurricanes. You get more and stronger hurricanes when you have a strong wind shear and you have high sea surface temperature. Usually, you have low wind shear during El Niños. But the temperature is so high that we don't know which ingredient is going to be the dominant ah. one. So Interesting. I've learned a lot already. Yeah, so this year is going to be potentially um, interesting, but also dismaying to see. Yeah, you know, and then, yeah we'll see which... Wind shear yeah. is more important or water temperature is more yeah. important. And also, we should remember winter of 2016, which is the last El Niños we had in the records, was also a lot of flooding in the, the whole Mississippi River flood. I remember. Yeah. We are yeah. possibly looking at something like that again. Well, if you're just tuning in, my special guest is Dr. Annalisa Bracco. She's professor and associate chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the Georgia Institute of Technology. We've been discussing the oceans are hot, so what? Makes for good swimming, right? Well, there's a lot more ramifications of that. So let's go to the next question. I'm thinking that maybe underlying all of this is global warming. The continued trend of increasing temperatures of the ocean going up, increasing temperatures of land over the last several decades. Am I correct or incorrect, Dr. Brock? Uh, you are absolutely correct. 
el niño, la niña, Enzo. So this, this oscillation, this kind of pendulum that we have, a kind of irregular pendulum in the Pacific, has been going on for many thousands of years. But we never experience this oscillation on top of such a warm baseline, which is changing so rapidly. We are not even adjusting to one change, and it's just getting even warmer. So it's very hard also to predict how the trend of the temperature, which are just increasing, is going to modify those climate variability modes. Yeah, I, I'm told by some people that, that I know that are, I think, climate change deniers. Um, you know, you, you find these among right-wing Republican camps evangelical Christian camps that they just don't want to hear it or they don't believe it. Um, and I, I tell them, it doesn't matter what you think or what you believe. If you think that man, human activities have caused this increase in greenhouse gases and temperatures are going to, it doesn't matter because according to my research around 1880, which is I think 143 years ago, if I do my math right, uh, we've been recording the temperature Every day. And those temperatures continue to go up. And in fact, the hottest hottest day was July 3rd, 2023. And that lasted one whole day, one whole day until July 24th. And according to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that's the NOAA, they say the four hottest days have occurred this year. This year, 2023, the four hottest days ever in 143 years from July 4th to July 7th. So, Annalisa, you're the expert. I'm, I'm really curious on your view. What's your view? Are, are human activities causing this rise in temperature or not? Yes. I would also, um, you know, before we go into the human activities, I would also uh, like to stress that we have very good information on temperature at this point and reconstructions for going back at least 10,000 years with enough precision mm. for NASA. So a big agency that really has the best instruments to measure those, you know, temperature in the world, saying that, um, you know, while health climate has changed through its history, the current warming is happening at a rate that has not been seen in the past 10,000 years. So it's really the rate how fast we are changing things that is worrisome. And the physics behind this warming is quite simple. Um, because if you add carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, you are going to get into a warmer planet. It's, it's this, the principle that works for greenhouse, gas, uh, greenhouse greenhouses where we grow veg and fruit faster or outside the season. So we, we use the same principle. And um, changing the composition, the chemical composition of the atmosphere is just kind of making the um, material that allows that greenhouse to work um, better at trapping heat. So how a greenhouse works is that the heat comes through, through photons, through light, and then it's converted in heat by the plants or the veggies that you're trying to grow, and it's trapped within, and so is able to make those plants even happier. And we are essentially doing the same thing. 
um, by changing the composition of the atmosphere, we are um, the, the carbon dioxide and the methane, the carbon, it's able to trap this heat a little bit better. And so we change what is the, you know, the, the atmosphere is transparent to the photons that come from the sun, but also to a certain amount, to a certain degree, to the heat that, that our planet emits. So the, the ocean warms because it's heat by photons, and that heat goes in the atmosphere, and that heat should, in part, go out, and now back into, radiated into the universe. And right now, less of that is radiated out. And mm. we, NASA has a very good instrument to satellites to measure the infrared radiation, so how much heat is coming out of the ocean or of land, and how much heat is coming out of the top of our atmosphere. And it can really, it, it shows very clearly, if you look at those data, that we are just trapping more. And so we are warming now. I've learned so much about environmental health and weather. Can I take a class with you? <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I really don't know. These are questions that I want to know. Um, one, one thing that you don't know is this weekend we had a guest from Mumbai, India, one of the largest cities in the world. And I asked him this question. We talked a lot about the United States versus India. I said, how many, what percentage of people in Mumbai do you think have air conditioners? And he said, maybe 10%. And I said, what, what percent do you think will have air conditioners in the next five years? And he thought, mm, a lot more. <laughs> so if you're listening to Vakar Wankiti, uh, this is a shout out to you. But, you know, we're going we're gonna to be facing a population that is getting wealthier in China, a population that's getting wealthier in India. They're having a middle class and they're going to want air conditioning. It's, let's face it, it's hot in India. Right now, they're in the monsoon season, he said. And, you know, temperature's gone down a little bit, but he said, you know, from March, April, May, June, it's really hot. Um, so what do you think about air conditioning, Dr. Bracco? Do you think that the third world developing more wealth and buying more cars, driving more cars, using more air conditioning, using more electricity, is that going to be a problem for yes, us? Yes, of course. It is. And we have to find a solution. to It's, it's a really big challenge because we cannot tell, uh, you know, other countries don't get what we did. You know, don't do what we did because you can see the damage, right? So just yeah. uh, enjoy the heat that we have partially caused and um, just don't get AC or don't get cars. Of course they're going to. And it's right. They should. And so we need to find a way to have that energy that we need and the, also the increasing energy that we are for, forecasting covered in ways that don't do as much damage to the environment as just burning oil does. Yeah, I, I heard someone today on a newscast, it was a, a, a poor person, lower income American, and she said, I can't afford to run the air conditioner anymore. And so I turned it off and it is so hot, she said. Um, and so I'm, 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 you know, these kind of environmental problems, they, they affect poor people yes. the most. They, they affect, you know, poor people that can't afford things. We're sitting here in an air conditioned office. I'm at home in my office. It's air conditioning here, central air. But, 
you know, we can't say to the rest of the world, you don't do as I do. We can't say that. So anyway, that's a little aside. Let me get into our questions here. So I want to talk about people because it all boils down to people, really. And I have friends in Arizona. I have family in Arizona. I have family in Tucson. There are quite a few Jordans in Tucson. So we know what's happening in the southwest United States. In Phoenix, there's like this heat dome. So what is a heat dome? I don't even know what a heat dome is and what causes a heat dome. So a heat dome is a high-pressure system that it's very stable and that is sitting in one place for just a long time, you know, several weeks. Okay. And um, in in the southwest, it usually occurs be- because of the temperature gradient between the land that warms up faster and the ocean. And um, uh, it's typical of summer. Um, it's usually typical of La Nina conditions, but just to, just to show that things are really changing this year, we have an El Nino and we have a huge heat dome there. We also yeah. have an, an equivalent one now sitting on the Mediterranean Sea for the same reason the the water is so hot that there is not enough gradient to generate strong winds between the land and the ocean on the Med. And so we're also having it there, um, you know, Sicily and it's, as 39 degrees Celsius at night. At, at night. night. And that's another place. And that's the same problem in, in the Southwest. It's not just that the temperature very high during the day. It's the problem is that the night temperature are not going down because you have this high pressure that is just not moving and is low, like covering completely. So nothing comes through. You really don't have even the, the, the heat release at night. It's really trapping. That's what my... That's what my friends and family are telling me. They said it's it's at night, like it's still 100 degrees at 10 o'clock. How do you get cool when you're in a third-story apartment without air conditioning? It's 100 degrees at 10 o'clock at night. You don't. You just don't get cool. So a heat dome then is a, a high-pressure area that just sits, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. And So here's... Go ahead. You know, in uh, Phoenix, in Naples, in Italy, we are seeing the same level of hospitalization that we have seen during COVID for the past couple of weeks. Mm. And that's for heat strokes and heat fatalities. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute, about death, ex- excess deaths caused by heat. So here's what the person in Phoenix said. She's Michelle Litwin, and she's the city's heat program manager and she said, Phoenix has always been hot. It, it, yeah, I can tell you we went, I don't know why we took a vacation to Phoenix area. <laughs> probably because we got a discount in July, like 10 years ago. And it was hot. It was really hot. She said, it's always been hot. But this is something else, she said. This kind of heat is something else. And the uh, Meteorological Service and National Weather Service says that heat records continue to fall there as heat records just pile up breaking these a thousand heat records of the past it's now 110 degrees fahrenheit listen to this 110 degrees fahrenheit for 18 straight days and we know that's around the globe even like places in spain i have a sister who's on a cruise i talked to her yesterday from madrid she said it is so hot it is so hot here so in Texas, let's go to Texas in the Southwest. I have a doctoral student who's now a professor at Stephen F. Austin University. 
I think it's Negoches, Texas. And the temperature there surpassed northern Africa as they reached 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And across, if we go across the Pacific Ocean and look at like China, they're using bomb shelters to put people down underneath the bomb shelters as cooling centers during a recent 10-day streak where the temperature was average 95 degrees Fahrenheit or higher. So what's going on there? I don't, I don't, I don't know what's going on. What's, what's going on in those areas? Is, is it just the heat domes? It's, yes, a high-pressure system. So what happens during El Niños is that usually you do get this, this lower wind shear, which is essentially saying that the atmospheric circulation all over the tropics, so really, you know, 40 north, 40 south, it's a little bit more stable than usual. And that really, it's, uh, that on top of just weather event that, you know, you can have um, heat waves independently of what El Nino or La Nina it's, it's doing. And those things together are, this year, it's, it's really um, astonishing what, what is going on. So do you think where people live now, where they choose to live in the future, let's say, I think I'm, you know, I really do this podcast for my grandkids. I'll be honest. Um, Jackson, Aubrey and Amelia Jordan. I really do it for them. You know, they're going to be in college in six, seven, eight years. They're going to be thinking about where to settle down. Should they think about you know, global warming when they choose, should they go to Arizona and go to buy a house or should they stay up Absolutely, north? you can find already um, products and, you know, calculation done also by the government um, that will show you which, what is the climate risk of any given place. Um, Georgia is doing very well. <laughs> Atlanta <laughs> is good. doing well compared to a lot of other places, but... Um, the problem, you know, the real issue is that we cannot count on that. Like we can do it maybe in the United States, right? But the solution cannot be massive migrations because they don't come free. And, you know. No, there's, they don't come free. There's increased costs. And we see that already. So the, uh, if you look at the illegal immigration um, in 2018 and 2019, where we had big spikes, those were mostly... The big increase has been in families from Honduras and Guatemala. They were traveling as unit, and they did that because of droughts. And so the crop failure for in those countries for two years in a row was just unsustainable. So mm. if you can afford moving, of course you will, and you can decide where to live. But the majority of people will not. And at the end of the game, the minority that can decide where to live is the one that is probably already bearing the largest responsibility for where we are. And, you know, you cannot just solve the problem. We are 8 billion at this point. We just went above 8 billions this year. Uh, more than half are in Asia. So the planet is a pretty busy place. And if you start seeing all the tropical areas having high climate risk, you just cannot move everybody else elsewhere. I think of what, what may happen in my friend's city of Mumbai. He said 50%, at least 50% of the people live in what he calls the slums. And they come typically, he said, from the north, farming areas, ag ag agrarian areas, I think we call them. 
uh, and looking for jobs. And he said they don't have any money. They don't have a house. And so they take a piece of tin or a couple pieces of cardboard, a couple pieces of wood, and they put up a shanty, a little shack in what he calls the slums. There's no running water, no sanitation, no air conditioning. And I wonder if it gets hot in Mumbai or hotter, what are they going to do? They're, they're not going to do anything. And then the government's going to have to look at maybe transplanting all those 50% of the people. And that's, we're talking about millions and millions of people. It's just not going to be possible. So let's look into your crystal ball for a minute. Dr. Bracco, it may be covered with two inches of mud. You may, you may not be able to see through it. But let's look into your crystal ball and give me a prediction. What do you think is going to happen? in five years? Sure. I, I So if I'm looking at the climate challenge, I think that the best ally we have is technology. So right now we are emitting about 40 gigatons of carbon per year. And that is just because of the energy we need. And we will need even more energy going forward for the reason you mentioned before. So what in my crystal ball, in my optimistic crystal ball, we are going in five years to have a better idea of how we can mitigate this climate change. What is realistic and which kind of technologies may help. And the idea with technologies is twofold. So what you can do with technology, what we are trying to develop with technology is twofold. One is to have energy that is green. So that doesn't burn fossil fuel and increase carbon dioxide. And the other one is to have new technologies that can take the carbon dioxide, the CO2, out of the atmosphere and store it, put it away somewhere. Um, and one, for example, you know, the, the big one where I think the uh, we are far enough to say we may be able to deploy that is uh, direct air capture. So really capturing the CO2 from the air and then store it at the bottom of the ocean or in some cave. Um, so my hope is that we will have a much better idea in five years of, you know, which technologies are holding their promise. There are others as well, let's, right? Let's look forward 20 years. Now, we know what technologies may work, you said, in five years. In 20 years, it would be uh, 2043, right? I, I 2043. I think by 20 years, we, we, in my optimistic crystal ball, we will know how to get to a carbon neutral planet. So a planet where we are producing okay. energy, emitting CO2 and getting rid of it and recycling it maybe. Uh, we will have a much better idea of what we can do with hydrogen in terms of energy production, which will be green, but we are still far away from understanding all the pros and cons. And we will be close to deploy negative emission technologies at scale. So those technologies that can reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere. Hopefully, we will also have some agreement in place. And that, I think, is very important so that, you know, it's really a, it's about a trillion dollar industry that needs to be built to remove CO2 from the atmosphere and to go into a carbon neutral planet. And so I think that we will have an agreement, agreements in place. Um, policy agreement so that this new industrial revolution will be a little bit more fair and equitable in the sense that it will help the population that needed the most, need, that need, for example, that, that air conditioning and that don't have it yet. Um, so hopefully that's where we are going. 
in my less optimistic crystal ball. So with my crystal ball. Yes, yeah, so let's hear your less your less <laughs> optimistic. Let's hear your pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> with a tipping point. And a tipping point is a concept that the concept of tipping point has been developing dynamical system theory, which is a branch of physics. And in climate science, what really means is that we eat a threshold. And if we cross that threshold, the changes that we're going to see are very large and irreversible. And if that happens, um, then we are in really serious trouble. So we need to stay away from those. Um, what is the tipping point, do you think? Is it a temperature? It's probably going to be set by temperature. Um, so, you know, one tipping point, one where we really will see very st strong damaging impacts will be we get to the point that we melt most of all of Antarctica. Right? Mm. At that point, you have pretty much all the cost of the U.S. underwater. So you have... So we're talking New York City, yeah, a lot of airports underwater. Yeah. Is that three degrees? I think? think that with three degrees, we are in deep, serious troubles. Okay. Because I've read recently a lot of climatologists like yourself and weather experts, they say, we didn't expect this to happen this yeah. fast. And they're like caught by surprise that things are happening so fast. And so I, I tend to be more pessimistic than you. I think human nature is, you know, you don't deal with anything until it starts to hurt. And it's starting, it's just now it's starting hurting. to hurt. It's hurting. You know, yeah. it, it, for example, the prediction, if we continue on this trajectory, by 2050, we would probably have no more coral reefs. You would just think, okay, oh it's goodness. coral reefs. Well, coral reefs are the foundation for a very healthy marine ecosystem. They provide, those marine ecosystems of so the fish that lives on coral reef, provide proteins to one billion of people. So the mm. protein supply of one-eighth of the world population comes from them. So you don't have those proteins anymore. You're going to have also famine and problem with food, right? So yeah. uh, it, it's, yeah, it's starting to be felt and understood. Yeah, so either you're optimistic or you're pessimistic, like me, um, and you need to think about this. And the reason we're doing this podcast is I don't hear anyone really doing podcasts about climate. I don't hear people talking about these issues, and we need to be aware. So, Dr. Bracco, this podcast is called Grassroots Health for a Reason. It's my belief that things that come up from the bottom, from people, are most lasting, sustainable, most impactful so what can people do, ordinary people do, to solve some of these problems of our oceans and land getting hotter? We need to be mindful of how much energy we are consuming and what are the sources of that energy. So we have to try as much as we can to go for renewable energy sources, green energy sources. We can help by you know, re reducing a little bit the uh, setting of our thermostat in winter and increasing it by a couple of degrees in summer. Uh, we can definitely, you know, sleep even better if it's a pretty cold room in winter. Um, we can do meetings online. We don't need to drive and fly as much as we do. Um, that would save some energy. Um, if we have to buy a new car, think about an energy efficient car, an energy efficient furnace, 
um, we can start thinking about building roofs that are a little bit better equipped to um, avoid the need for strong AC. Like, you know, you don't need a black roof in Atlanta. Uh, a white roof would be much better. I mean, the Greek have learned the lesson for a long time. Why we are still using black? I mean, and lastly, I think we should really and massively disinvest in oil companies that are not using the profit or a very large portion of their profit to develop new carbon technologies to get to a negative emissions. So those companies, you know, we, we still need oil. There is, there is no question about the need for energy is just too large. We cannot just go green and, and say we're done. But those companies who make so much money out of the mess we're in, they should really use all their profit right now to develop carbon neutral or carbon negative technologies. And we should hold them accountable in that regard at least. Yeah, I think it was um, Donna Shalala. I think she is a former EPA director under Obama, maybe. I forget who she was under, but I remember hearing her speak at a national conference. And I think it was Atlanta. And she said, um, you know, don't worry what Donald Trump says. Don't worry about what others say. The market will drive everything. And I thought about this. I told my Indian friend, I said, did you know that you can't buy a sedan anymore from Chevrolet or from Ford? They still make maybe the Mustang, but they don't make like sedans that are gas efficient. They make a lot of pickup trucks with V8 engines, big engines, and they make a lot of SUVs because that's what people buy. And I fully predict that people will go back to energy efficient cars and I think it was President Obama who said, yeah, gas has to get higher in America. The cost of gas has to like hurt maybe $5 a gallon or something before people will start thinking about buying energy efficient cars. That's just the way human nature is. That's just what we do. So if you're listening, I think this is great advice. Think about the energy that you're, produ you're using. Turn up the thermostat a little bit in the summer Turn it down in the winter when you're not home. Buy a programmable thermostat. You can, you know, say it's like this house goes down to 60 degrees when I'm not home. I've stopped meeting in person with people. I do everything virtually now. And so we have the technology like this technology that we use. So, yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. Um, so you've been listening to Grassroots Health Podcast. This is Tim Jordan. I'm your host and my guest Today has been Dr. Annalisa Bracco. She's professor and associate chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology. And we've been discussing the topic, the oceans are hot. So what? So Dr. Bracco, I hear a little accent in your voice. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm from Italy originally. You're from Italy originally. What part of Northwest, Italy? Northwest, Torino. Okay. I know they were hit hard by COVID. They were one of the leaders in uh, kind of setting the tone for the rest of the world. I was there. Uh, you were there. <laughs> oh, six yeah. months, we got oh, stuck. <laughs> you got stuck there. Uh, how long have you been in the States? Has it been 20 years? Yeah, 18. Okay. 
Well, thank you for coming on today. I'm going to leave you the last words to you. I always say my list, my guests get the, the last words to leave with our listeners. So what do you say to our listeners? What would you like to leave? With hope, because I think that climate change is a threat, but it's also an opportunity. As you were saying, there is a lot of marketing opportunity. There is a lot of uh, industry, that new industry possibilities. So cl- uh, solving the, the climate challenge, it really is an opportunity to get together, to work together. This works for scientists, engineers, politicians, administrators, business people. Um, there is really something that can be gained by anybody. No matter from which side you want to tackle the, the challenge, um, there is the, there are potential solutions from really a multitude of perspectives. Um, you know, you can build and develop a new profitable industry or you can help humanity to, to live in a more habitable and fair planet. Um, and it's, uh, you know, going back to the young generations, it's a weak problem. It's really a complex Problem, but it's also really fascinating. It, it's from both a science and engineering perspective. It's very interesting. So there are a lot of opportunities to engage in it, like you know, physics, chemistry, biology, math, computer science, engineering, any engineering, medicine, social science, public policy, art, communication, and you can make the difference. So I think the young generation really have. An opportunity, not just it's not just a threat for them, and they have to treat it like that. Otherwise, we're not getting out of it. Well, thank you, Dr. Bracco, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And remember, everyone, as the Dalai Lama said, be kind whenever possible, and it's always possible. I know a master clinical teacher when I hear one. Dr. Roger Seahelt of MedCram is a master clinical teacher. He's quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, critical care, and sleep medicine. He's also an associate professor of medicine and co-founder of MedCram with Kyle Aldred, a physician assistant. How would I describe MedCram? Hmm. Well, I guess I'd describe it this way. It's a perfect place to learn. Their YouTube channel includes more than 100 free medical videos, and they've also created helpful courses in a variety of topics at a very reasonable price. Subscribe and start learning today like I do. Become a better student, better healthcare provider, score better on exams, cut down on study time, or obtain continuing education credits. You can find them at medcram.com.